Back in 1966, this was my father's jewelry store and home for my whole family. I was 13 when we moved there from Centerline. Ed Kiska bought the place from a Belgian immigrant who had already owned it for 40 years. My father came back from the war, learned about jewelry and how to fix watches. His dream was to own a shop of his own. My father put every dollar he had into it, and my grandfather helped out with a loan. Greetings and salutations, and welcome to Radio Days, a podcast radio program that delves into the world of terrestrial radio. It's DJs and on-air personality, and you, all fans of radio as a medium. Here's your host, Ron. Hello and welcome to Radio Days, a podcast program that takes a look inside radio through the eyes of those who have worked behind the mic of radio. Today's show is produced by Ron Robinson Studios. If you need professional marketing videos or professional photography headshots, maybe you need drone video or photography, head over to ronrobinsonstudios.com. Well, before we welcome our special guest today, I want to let you know our documentary about the history of terrestrial radio, Radio Days, the documentary, I know, real original, come in 2021. My guest today is one of the on-air personalities that will appear in this documentary. My guest today, uh, you know him. He's worked in Detroit uh, in Detroit media for decades. He's an author a broadcast journalist, a historian. Um, you've probably seen him uh, most likely on an election night reporting on television. You may have read his work in the Detroit Free Press. Maybe you've heard his voice on WWJ, um, one of the first radio stations in the country, by the way. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Tim Kiska. Hello, Tim. Hi. Hi. Thank you for inviting me. appreciate it. Thank you for joining us. Uh, much appreciated. I want to Again, I want to thank you for being a, a part of my documentary about the history of terrestrial radio because um, you gave me so much great content, especially about the very early days of radio. There's a lot uh, of information that not a lot of people know, so there's not a lot of people that could help me get that information about the early days of radio because, uh, you know, you know, you're much like me. You, 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 when, you, when you're interested in something, you, you delve in and find out about it. I can't wait for people to see this movie, but before we get started, Tim... Um, the clip we played uh, there at the top at the opening was taking uh, was taken from a documentary you produced called One Block, Two Businesses, Three Families. Um, in fact, mm-hmm. if you find yourself on YouTube, I recommend you check it out if you're a fan of Detroit history. Tim, tell me about what made you produce this short film. Well, two things. It was actually part of a, a – I did a print version of this thing first, and then Bill Kubota and I put together the film – a uh, short version is I grew up, one of the places I grew up, right around Mack and Chalmers uh, on the on Detroit Seaside. And uh, we lived above my father's jewelry store uh, during the 60s. And I don't know, it was just one summer. Well, we actually, it was the spring day, and I was uh, just sort of in the neighborhood. So I, I drove by, and, and my, my place was burned out. And just being, you know, the guy that I am, I mean, in terms of, you know, I always want to know what the hell happened. That's sort of like <laughs> what drives me. I spent three months, you know, figuring out, A, what did happen, which is essentially an arsonist came in and blew the place out. But I decided I'd do like a uh, a history of this block from the 20, 1925 when it really kind of came alive. Uh, it was a Belgian neighborhood. And and then going on to, uh, you know, to, to when we moved out, uh, which would have been the day after the 1967 rebellion, whatever you want to call it, uh, happened. 67. So uh, I, I just spent three months working on, you know, 
the history of that, what happened when my place got blown out. And, uh, and in the middle of all of that, I decided one of the, one of the things I decided to do is uh, just go in to see what it looked like, which is maybe not the smartest thing I've ever done. Uh, well, I mean, because they're here, you know, we're basically, you know, we're in a bad, they're a tough neighborhood and I'm going into an abandoned building and I'm not sure who, you know, in other words, I was going to go to my the living quarters we had or the apartment we had above my father's store. Who knows who the hell's up there, right? But right. We went up there. Yeah, went up there, um, you know, shot video of what it looked like after the place was blown out. And, and that's what drove me to do that, you know, and put together that whole thing. And and just being a history buff, I love it because even if, if you don't know that area or even know your family or even heard of the jewelry store, just right. just to, just the fact that the, there's I mean there's so much history in Detroit that just you know especially in today's generation they just don't know about so I, I love that so again if if you're listening and you find yourself uh, uh, on YouTube uh, fantastic piece it's one block two businesses and three families that's the name of the picture right yes it's a short yeah. film I, it, yeah and and you, you can get it if you know if you Google it you can there's it ran a version of it ran in the Metro Times uh, you know the print version of that you know. And uh, anyhow, there you go. Well, I, so. I know you're you're shaping young minds at the University <laughs> of Michigan in Dearborn still, but uh, I want to talk to you. I want to go back a few decades, if you don't mind, Tim. In October of 1984, back mm-hmm. when you were a reporter for the Free Press, being in mm-hmm. broadcasting wasn't even an idea to you yet. You wrote uh, you wrote uh, what some would call a scathing article about Detroit after the 1984 World Series celebration. Did you not? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, we oh bring it back to that. Yeah, the yeah. survey that we did. Um, from exactly. what from what I remember, you were not uh, popular after that article. Can you tell me about the the when the legendary J.P. McCarthy had you on a show to discuss your article? Was this the first time you were on yeah. the Detroit Airwaves in Detroit? Can you tell me about that? No, 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 no. I've been a, on a on a fair amount, um, but the short version is, I mean, just you know, the the, the context was it was after the '84 World Series, and if you recall, Bubba, uh, a guy named Bubba was you know uh, photographed in front of a flaming police car right near Tiger Stadium, and of course that was... Infamous picture. The picture's infamous. Infamous, yeah. Exactly. Totally infamous. Well, so we ended up doing a national survey, because, you know, this was on tape loop all across the country for I don't know how long, for, you know, two, three straight days. So we went... Uh, I wanted to find out, okay, what what's the public opinion of Detroit? And as you might expect, we came back, the survey results came back, uh, people think this was a pretty screwed up town. So I wrote that. Um, and of course I'm getting, you know, I mean, this is pre, pre social media. So I, I wasn't flamed yet. There was no such thing as flaming. Uh, but anyway, the bottom line is people went crazy and JP McCarthy had me on his show and he, I'll forever remember the way he introduced me. Uh, you know, and it was, this part was kind of paraphrasing. He says, you know, we've had a tough week. Here in Detroit with, you know, we won the World Series, but some bad things have, you know, ha- happened. He says uh, the image, what it's done to our image, well, the man, who, I want to introduce you to the man whose job it was, whose job it was to take the temperature of this country and find out what we think, what they what they think. So the way, and immediately the, the numbers, the, the call stopped because I think JP, by saying who, that man whose job it was, kind of took it out of the personal realm but that was the kind of power that that guy had 
And I, I think mean, it's, it's a testament. Him. I think it's a testament, Tim, of, of what what a pro he was because he could have, right. like you said, the way he worded that, that he could have totally made you a villain and made that. Totally. He, and and you know what? That would have been easy because he would have been on the eleven o'clock news, but he did not right. do that. No, he didn't. And 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 that that's why this guy had so much credibility. Um, I think over the years, which he earned. You know, I mean, every 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 bit of it. Now, you know, there are criticisms: too much sailing, too much golf, too much of a, uh, uh, you know. Well, he would call him right now a moderate Republican, but you know, he would tilt a little bit of the Republican. But I mean, uh, look what's happened since. You know, I mean, uh, some so I rest my case, Your Honor. <laughs> <laughs> Now, before we get, I did want to ask you. So, before that, you had said you had been doing some stuff. Was it on JP show, or what, what? What kind of broadcasting were you doing while you were a print journalist? Oh well, you know, I was. I guess there were a couple of things that we started. I was started going. We went live on first time I was on ever on TV night, election night, nineteen seventy six. That was Jimmy Carter versus uh, Gerald Ford, and then we started doing. Um, you know, I, I guess I would show up from time to time, depending on, you know, the, the circumstance. I was covering uh, the Wayne County and a little bit of City Hall. So I'd end up on Detroit Public TV on Neil Shine's show uh, from time to time. I was covering federal courts. So, I mean, you know, I, so I would be sort of, you know, they would, when they would need to bring in a reporter to explain what the heck's happening. I guess I was the guy. Now, before we get to your time at WWJ, I want to, and I don't even know if you remember this, but you and I were paired together when I was uh, um, an instructor at Spex Howard. The the uh, oh, recent the recently yeah. passed uh, Dick uh, Kernan asked me mm-hmm. to. Uh, he said, "There's somebody coming in that uh, you know, I want you to kind of give him some pointers." And and I, I, first right. off, I was flattered that Dick Kernan even thought that much of me to to do that. But but the, I was surprised that here comes Tim Kiska. I mean, everybody. I mean. Anybody who's because I I knew for me radio journalism was what I wanted to do so of course I I knew your work and I was familiar with you so I was right. like very immediately like kind of intimidated but at the same time I was like you know you just want to make sure you're doing it right but I I knew right away that you were just going to make that natural transition to radio and of course you went on to, to to work at WWJ but I bring I bring that up only because of of Dick Kernan just recently passed and, and it's yeah it's just, and I wanted to ask you if if you could share a Dick Kernan story because he meant uh, so much to so many. You know, all I can tell you is the kind of guy that he was. I mean, you know, you've been around the block, you know, and, and there's some people when, when, you know, you pick up the phone and so-and-so's on your cell phone, you're kind of thinking, uh, you know, I'd rather not. Uh, you're right. Dick was 180 degrees the other way. He's a guy that whenever you got him on the phone, uh, it would be, you'd be on the phone way too long. What should have been a, could have been a you know twenty second. No, right. but that was in a good in a good way because yes. he was entertaining. He was engaging, uh, and and so I just you know, yeah, just everything about the guy. You know, there was just this, you know, good karma is is the yeah. only way I could describe it. So yeah. I'm, I'm I'm you know, and I it's sort of you know he and I weren't that tight. I mean, but we were pretty tight. You know, and. Uh, you know, and we we were he used to hang out at a place called the Stackers Deli. That was his club, as it were, uh, out in Southfield. We went to lunch there maybe four or five times. Uh, but yeah, just a good guy, just a good guy, quality human being, quality human, much like much, much like yourself. But I want to ask you about you were a print journalist for years before you pursued a career in radio broadcasting. How and why right. did you start coming to work at WWJ? And was that the station you wanted to work at, or was that just where well, it kind of ended this, up? This, 
this was, well, this is what kind of odd here. Um, uh, I had been working, okay, in print for 32 years, right? And I, I, I left the Detroit News early in 2002. And I already started teaching at UM, but the bottom line is I was going for my PhD. Uh, but then uh, Rich Homburg, who was a buddy, an old, old buddy of mine from the, from the days when I was you know, covering, uh, covering radio, called me up and said, ah, you know anybody who, uh, anybody who uh, can write a good, simple sentence for broadcast? You know, because we're, we're looking for somebody as a writer producer. And I, I think I surprised him. I says, well, I can do that, Dick. Because it's, said, it's a lot different writing for radio and television broadcasting than it is for print. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, no question about that. And, and so I, you know, my motive was saying, wait a minute, I might be of more value to my students if I actually worked in this business and could come back and talk about, you know, okay, this is what's, what you're going to encounter. And so uh, I, did, I went through the interview process and uh, got hired, and, uh, which I was thrilled, and it was part-time. Um, 15 bucks an hour is what you got, which, okay, I'll take that. And it was, uh, it was a great experience. And then I think what happened after that, I got like famous for my 15 seconds of fame. I happened to, a <laughs> uh, b- bunch of people had gotten, uh, the Kwame Kilpatrick was running against a guy named Freeman Hendricks. And oh, I remember that. Other, what a fun yeah, a time that was to be a journalist, wasn't it? Well, yeah. Uh, but what had happened is there was a, uh, everybody else got it wrong but me. Let's put it this way. And I was at WWJ. I mean, did that over their airwaves and Channel 2's airwaves. It was a kind of a dual thing. So what happened is they were, um, WWJ said, uh, look, I mean, that was great. We'd like to, you know, have more of you. So maybe we can arrange something around your teaching schedule. So that's how I ended up up there for, <clears throat> for a long time. Well, I, I think it's cool that you worked at WWJ because as you as we talked about uh, for my documentary that people can uh, check out later this year, another shameless plug, a WWJ, yeah. WWJ in Detroit was uh, um, the first licensed radio station in the country. Now, I know that's disputed, but uh, that's something right. that we do talk about in the movie. Most people don't know that WWJ, if it wasn't the first, it was the second uh, certified uh, or you know licensed radio station in the country. Oh, yeah, and, and, and you know, even if it wasn't, first or second or, you know, who cares? Uh, they were, I mean, really doing a lot of amazing things, particularly in the 1920s. I mean, they were pretty much ahead of the pack uh, in terms of the country, in terms of their creative programming. Uh, I mean, they were doing things like, uh, okay, this is this is a radio station hiring, just imagine any radio station in Detroit hiring a big chunk of the Detroit Symphony and having them do concerts five nights a week live. That's what they did, uh, you know, routinely. So, I mean, I, I can't go on enough about all of the you know, innovative, creative things that they did during that period. And, and part of it, you know, part of it was you had, you know, the Detroit News, uh, which owned the station at that time, was the biggest newspaper in the country. And so between this newspaper and, and, and this radio station, which everybody listened to, I mean, my God, these guys had some power. I have to tell you, this is a funny little story because I recently interviewed Dick uh, Dick Purton for not only the movie but also right. for the podcast. Right. I was asking. I interviewed Dick Purton, and this was as I sat down on camera for the for the for the documentary, and I asked him right. about uh, you know to talk to me about War of the Worlds, and mm-hmm. he started. He 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 didn't answer. He never answered my question for some reason. He segued almost immediately into the whole. Pittsburgh, you know, uh, 
versus Detroit, which was the first right. radio station. And I, w- I wasn't right. even going to ask him about that. So because that happened, I decided to ask him about something else, and I got pure gold. Because after that happened, in my head, I was like, well, I'm going to ask him about this too. So we went through a couple more questions, and then I asked him about Father Coughlin. And, oh, okay. Yep. And he actually, him and his wife, Gail, actually had dinner with Father Coughlin. And this is a story that he tells really? on my podcast uh, oh, from a few goodness. weeks ago. So yeah, it, it's just he he was at the, he was at a celebration for a restaurant that the owner of the restaurant asked him to come, and so he was mm-hmm. at a table with thirteen people, and sitting to the right of of his wife Gail was Father Charles Coughlin, and 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 he tells this great story about how Father Coughlin lectured him lectured Gail on how she should raise his her six girls. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> But my point is, well, is I just, I was just, I couldn't believe that I got, I mean, I asked him about Father, I wasn't even going to ask him, and and I got this great information about how he had dinner with him. Obviously, he was, Father Coughlin was up there in age, I'm sure, because this was within the 70s. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, that was the thing. I mean, he he was so powerful in this country, and then he got, he was given the choice, okay, you're going to stay a priest or you can be a broadcaster, but you can't do both. And he spent most of the last part of his life being just kind of a regular pastor of a big parish. That's that's what he was. But essentially, um, at the end of the day, he can say, I mean, arguably, talk about who was the first radio station. Father Charles Coughlin was probably the first celebrity that was spawned from the medium of radio. Yeah, well, there was one other one, though, that I would put in there. Um, and it's a guy that he got. His name was Jerry Buckley, and he was a commentator, and there was a particularly hot election in 1930, and he was considered, I mean, you know, the hottest commentator of the day, and they it was a, they were recalling a guy named Bowles from, uh, from office, Charles Bowles. Bowles gets beat, recalled, uh, which is, by the way, the thing that Buckley had been pushing for. He gets beat, and within hours uh, – uh, Buckley was gunned down in the hotel of a lobby on uh, lobby of a hotel on Woodward Avenue. Wow! Yeah, get, get that. Just except. Wait now. This became international headlines. International headlines. Um, so he was almost as big for about ten minutes, but you know he kind of died. You know, and uh, I also wanted to ask you about the uh, you know someone who covers election night, and you still even you know, you still keep up on things because you you do a podcast mm-hmm. and we're going to talk about your podcast here in a few minutes. But I want to ask you about the current state of broadcast journalism, journalism. But uh, but first, I want to play a clip from you for you from uh, from WGR reporter Gene Fogel. It's a training period where you're going through learning all of the different problems and 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 uh, features of different ways of reporting that only make you a better reporter. So so it's it's a little disturbing to see that young people today look at TV as more or less of a show business. And they don't get that, in my opinion, get that deep journalism background that you need to really be able to cover stories and deal with stories and understand the complexity of stories. He goes on to talk about the fact that, you know, it, it used to be where, you know, a reporter would start at, in print and then they would go to radio and then go on to television, right. where a lot of these journalists are going right from college to television, and it's more show business than it is journalism. Do you think that's why there's so much uh, speculation that, that, about what's real and what's fake anymore? No. I mean, I think they're almost two separate issues. There are two separate issues here. If I could play devil's advocate, I don't think it's necessary that you have to have had worked at a newspaper uh, to be a great journalist. A couple of good examples, Edward R. Murrow. 
maybe the greatest of them all, never spent a day at a newspaper. True story. Uh, Roger Mudd, who's a, one of my big uh, heroes, uh, I think spent maybe a summer as an intern at one of the Richmond, Virginia newspapers. So I, I think you can be perfect. I mean, Peter Jennings, I think it was a terrific journalist, terrific Never worked at a newspaper. You don't have to. I mean, you don't have to ever have worked at a newspaper, I don't think. Well, I'm not saying uh, I would have been better, but I will tell you this. I went the other way because when I was on the beach what? for a minute, I went. I, I, I applied at a newspaper. I was living in Tennessee at the time, and I applied to be a writer for a newspaper. And right. I have to tell you, it was it was really challenging for me to change my writing style from broad, not only broadcasting to the print style, but just right. the the amount of facts that I'd never had time to put in my writing in, in broadcast, but was mm-hmm. was almost essential in print. Right. Well, you know, and I, and I, I kind of had to go the other way because I think going to J, I think a lot of when I went from from print to WWJ, I think there were a number of people saying, "Well, I wonder if he's going to be able to adjust to the broadcast style." And uh, it was actually, you know, I, I got a book by a guy named Mervyn Mervyn Block called "Shorter, Sharper, Smarter." which is considered, I mean, this guy has written for the networks for years and is considered by some, that, that's considered the Bible of broadcast writing. And uh, I read that, but uh, no, so I, no, I mean, well, I mean, let's face it, that demarcation is going away because of social media and the story. If it's you, too if readily you're available. To, it's too readily available. Right. Well, not just that, but if you're, you shouldn't be able to, if you're, if you're going to be out there on the, doing something, you should be able to write something on the web. You should be able to maybe do a podcast, you should be able to do a whole bunch of things that, you know, were never done before. You know, before print was print, broadcast was broadcast, and and never the twain shall meet. Well, now the whole thing is converged, you know, big time. Do you think the fact that wanting to be first rather than right hurts us too? Yeah. Oh, it does. Good example of that is uh, most of your, hopefully many of your listeners, I think, might be familiar with the ghoul. So go along with the ghoul. Ain't that good? Right. From, from uh, Right. But yeah. Well, anyhow, um, I got a call from uh, the free press saying, look, we've heard the ghoul has died. Uh, can you can you uh, can you do the, the obit? Well, so I scratched the surface. I said, sure. So I think it's probably about six o'clock at night. We I start scratching the surface, and the only thing that we had, or I anybody had, that he was dead was a Facebook post from his ex-wife. Now, uh, Ron, would you want to bet your career that he was in fact dead on that? No. Well, uh, I started, and I, I had the ghoul's cell phone number, but. I mean, I, I called it once, and I, I just didn't want to bug his wife again. You know, you know what I was saying. So I had nothing, and then people started running. It hit, it hit social media, and it just freaking exploded yeah. all over the place. And then some of the TV stations started picking it up, and I'm still going. So we have a talk at eleven o'clock at night. Me and my free press editor saying, "I know everybody else is running this stuff, but all we have right now." is a Facebook post from the ex-wife. That's all we got. So uh, do we run this or not? And I would like to, you know, the old Clint Eastwood line, do you feel lucky, punk? Well, do you, punk? Um, so we held we held the story until we finally got to uh, one of the Google's employees um, who confirmed it for me. But everybody was biting on that story. Because I mean I, I could I could see why because man I'm sitting there going 
I'm looking down the tsunami of social media posts, you know, that he's dead. And I'm making, am I making the free press look stupid by holding back? Like we don't know what we're doing. Uh, but I'm glad we did. So it's it's better to err on the side of caution than slander something or get a story wrong because that in some well, cases can be more dangerous. Yeah, and I don't want to totally ruin my career by you know, <laughs> right? You know, some some guy that hasn't been on TV for thirty years. That's how I'm going to blow it, right? right? You know, God, no thanks. Speaking of somebody who was on TV doing some show prep uh, in preparation for my interview with you today, Tim. Uh, Talk to me about Bill Bonds. He's almost, uh, you know, a lore now, but, uh, man, growing up with Billy Bonds on television, just what great TV he made. But he was a great reporter. Oh, he was. I mean, uh, there are still legend story, legendary stories. People who were around City Hall in the 60s, he, I mean, he would, he actually worked the beat. He was knocking on, you know, going up and down the halls of City Hall so he could break stories uh, and be the best reporter there is. And he'd you know, even before he hit the airwaves, I think he was admired as a, as a as a radio reporter. You know, I think he figured out how to do it, you know, that he knew about the drama that you can inject into TV. And I think he took advantage of that long before uh, other people figured out how to do that. Well, what do you think it was about Bill Bonds that captured people's imagination? First of all, you he cared. I think that was the thing that I think got the people. You know, he wasn't just reading the news it was like he was emotionally invested in it somehow i think that was part of it part of it was he has a sense of drama uh part of it by the way is that uh, he was actually had a good news sense and i think all of those stuff together all of those things together i think made him top notch his real moment was 1967 channel 7 was a distant third in the ratings 67 happened and within a year, I don't know it was a year, but a very short period of time, because of Bonds' anchoring, they were like the station to beat. Uh, and it was partly because he was on the air. I mean, I interviewed Coleman Young once about him. The way he described it, he said, is that I was watching TV, and it says it was like Bill Bonds was the one guy that was bleeding for, for our city. And I think that was it. I think that's, that was his great moment. That's when people saw what he could do. They shipped him off to L.A. for a while. That was not a good move for either Bill or ABC. They brought him back here and, of course, you know, stayed there for you know, as long as he did. What are your thoughts on terrestrial radio's current state, Tim? Well, I, I just don't know how it's going to the same as newspapers. How are they going to monetize this? How are they going to make all of this stuff pay? Change just never stops. And, and I think these guys are in a hell of a spot. A lot of them paid too much for these stations back when uh, uh, licenses were at a premium. These companies end up selling stock on Wall Street. And, you know, there's just a whole bunch of stuff like that, that now they're behind the eight ball and the money's drawing, you know, dry, you know drying up. And how is this going to work? I mean, they're going to have to make some kind of drastic changes. So the, let's put it this way. The, day, the days of the multi-zillion dollar contracts and like guys like jp done yeah no uh, no kidding i mean yeah, it, yeah it's it's and it's bizarre and I, I i don't know if it's because here's the thing is like when 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 television came along right. and and radio kind of had to reinvent itself and luckily elvis came along and then the beatles and then we're off to the right. races but they changed it a little right. bit to to less storytelling and less serials which became the staple for television and they said right. well let's just do music well now you know all you have to say is you know you know, play Rhinestone, Rhinestone Cowboy by uh, Glenn Campbell. Glenn man. Campbell, Glenn thank Campbell. you. And and Alexa plays it. So I I don't know if music is necessarily where radio should be, but I don't think anything's going to change 
so long as big conglomerates own all these radio stations. I think the key is maybe selling them back to mom and pop shops because then you're going to get creativity. But until then, I, I don't think it's going to get any better. I, I just don't see how. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't either. I mean, I just don't know how this is going to – they're going to have to figure out some other way to deliver something that people want to hear. And what that what, what do people want to hear? Now, right now, I mean, some stuff that's helping is uh, traffic and weather on my old station, WWJ. I mean, you're still, if you're running into a traffic jam, well, you're not going to be able to get it off of, uh, you know, Sirius XM. Let's put it that way. Or maybe you can. I don't know. But but there's still things. If there's a snowstorm coming our way, you know, if there's some kind of uh, urban emergency, all of that stuff still draws people back. But, you know, I don't know. Is it enough to make things get paid? I think it'll always have a place. I just don't think it'll ever be as yeah. relevant as it was because, I mean, no, you and no. I grew up in a time when when radio was a part of our daily lives in a very major way. Right. And that ain't happening anymore. If so. if you were in charge, how would you what would you what, what would be your first step in, in changing the perception of maybe trying to garner some more listeners? Because like you said, ter- terrestrial radio will always have a place so long as there's p- stations broadcasting live and local or at least local. But what, I, what, what would you do? Good question. The answer is I don't know. <laughs> I just well, don't that's know. That's the how. honesty. I love it. <laughs> right. Yeah, I just, you know, if I were running the show, I would still like to do more news or well let's put it this way now i would say well wait a minute i only do serious radio that kind of stuff well take a look at wdet's ratings you know i think it's a personally i think it's a superb radio station a lot of bang for the buck out of their news department it's intelligent it's backed up by uh, npr and all of that stuff and with all of this stuff with this extraordinary product that they've got they are still way you know people just don't listen much uh, I mean, in big numbers, let's put it that way. They're never in the top five. They would never, ever be in the top five. And so what I'm saying here is they would probably fire me within a couple of years when the numbers weren't turning around. You know? Right, right. But that said, a lot of people that are in radio, uh, much like myself, which we're doing today, and then, of course, you do uh, you do uh, a podcast. So more people are doing podcasts. But before we get to the right. subject of podcasts, talk a little bit about what you're doing with your podcast, because I think it's very fascinating. Well, I mean, uh, we started something called the Detroit History Podcast, and all we do, we'll, we'll pick, uh, we've, we've done 30 of them so far, three seasons of 10 apiece, and we'll pick a topic. And some of them have been, for instance, the 1943 uh, Detroit riot, which, by the way, was a riot, uh, no question about it. Early to mid-1950s Detroit Red Wings, um, you know, I mean, lots, all lot different topics. And we'll just do 20 minutes on that topic. We'll interview people, sometimes historians. Um, we'll get original audio from all kinds of different sources. Well, that's what we do. Um, and it's, it seems to have caught on. We're pushing 100,000 downloads now at this point total. Yeah, in about 25 different countries. So so that part's been nice and, and it's been fun. Are you, are, you, are you capitalizing on the theater of the mind? Absolutely. No talk, question talk about, about how it. You, talk about how you do that because this is what people don't think about when they're listening to the radio. But go ahead and talk about well, what goes into that if you could. Well, okay, this one that just pops in my head. I did one on the closing of the Anchor Bar, um, which was uh, back in the day the big newspaper bar. And, and so – I interviewed Pete Wolmeyer. We were talking about a guy named Doc Green, who in the 60s was a big columnist for the news. Pete is talking about what had happened where Doc got shot up really badly in a battle uh, in one of the uh, one of the Pacific Islands. And when Pete's talking, 
it's we put some we program some music underneath it and and we uh we do some other things too in terms of spaces in terms of pieces of silence here and there so and and to make it seem a lot more not seem but to sort of give an accent to the the gravity of the whole thing so that's what we do i mean you know i mean yeah i mean that's why podcasting is such an interesting thing because you can do all kinds of theater of the mind things you can use sound effects as long as you're not you know misleading people uh, animation things that you can do these days I, I know i know we'll continue to see you on local tv on election nights but what what else is uh what's next for tim kiska well i'm new season of the uh, detroit history podcast and i'm uh, starting to work on that uh, that's the big thing. I've got the semester coming up, so I got to make sure my students are tended to. And uh, you know, and I've got a couple of other projects in the works that I've been playing with. So and let's. So let, well, you you brought it up. Let's talk about uh, U of M Dearborn. Uh, could you talk a little bit about uh, about your classes and what uh, what you talk about, what you teach your students? I mean, without giving you know a free education. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, no, no, no. The short the the, the short version is. Uh, it's basic journalism. Now, we, we've been talking about how fast things are changing, but the fundamentals have not changed at all. You still have to get your facts right. You still have to spell the name, you know, the names of the people you're writing about correctly. So there's a lot that... Uh, uh, and that's far more challenging than it used to be. <laughs> right, exactly. And particularly because now you've got this, you asked earlier about speed, and get, you know, pressure to be number one. Well, before it was... That was okay with a daily newspaper, as long as you got it in by the first edition deadline, you're okay. But now with with the uh, the web being the way it is, you know everybody's pushed. Okay, you got to press the button now, and and so anyway, I'm, the fundamentals have not changed. That's what I'm arguing, uh, and so that's what I teach them. Um, I think that also even if you're not going to journalism, I think it's valuable for for people to know how how is news gathered. Why is some stuff news and one other's why is other stuff not news? Um, how do you tell a fake news story from a real one? All of that kind of stuff. Well, well let me ask important. you this: for 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 the for the person who isn't in journalism, what advice would you give uh, to consumers of news in today's market? Be I'd uh, be skeptical. Skeptical. I would ask, where are they getting that information exactly? What's the source? In other words, somebody says, "Well, the election has been stolen." And then Michigan was crooked. Then uh, the question is, somebody says that, then you say, well, where are you getting that information? Where is your proof? And and I think that's what people have to do. I mean, just sort of scratch the surface a little bit. That's the key. Tim, I can't thank you enough for joining me today. All the best to you and yours, my friend. Thank you yep. again for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yep. Tim Kiska, thank you again, Tim, and thank you for tuning in for Radio Days, the podcast. And, of course, keep an eye out for Radio Days, 100 Years of Radio, coming later this year. Today's show, of course, brought to you by Ron Robinson Studios. If you need professional marketing videos, drone video, head over to ronrobinsonstudios.com and see what Ron Robinson Studios can do for you. Tune in next week for another episode of Radio Days, the podcast. Until then.